Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson, recording another episode just steps away from the Expo Hall here at ILEDA 2023. So it may be a little busier in the background than some of our normal episodes, but being here at the International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association Conference in St. Louis this year with so many members of law enforcement together in one place, It's allowed us the opportunity to pull some of those folks in and have conversations with them in person, something we're not always able to do. And it's also allowed me and our host, Michael Warren, a chance to be in the same room at the same time, because Michael, you're usually in Michigan. I'm usually in Tennessee when we record these episodes. And this week, we kind of split the difference. The uh, the title <laughs> of the movie is Meet Me in St. Louis, right? That's yeah, how that works. Yeah, well, you know, what Diamond Rio had a song, Meet in the Middle. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of what we did here. That works. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's really kind of cool that we're able to pull in some of these names and law enforcement and just, you know, have conversations with them. Yeah, you, you know, I, I should point out to our listeners that, that uh, uh, we have a couple people in the back ground on almost all our podcasts we have brandon and aaron in the background uh, which means they don't have access to a microphone uh so this is just between you and i for a second okay you know they put warning labels on different you know different types of material and liquids and stuff like that i need to put a warning label on today why is that? Okay, uh, you and I—we're we're the criers in the group, aren't we? <laughs> okay. And, I mean, and, I, I like to say emotional. Okay. Well, well I just want to point out that that our guest—I uh, was able to hear him speak uh, at an Emerson Hour uh, at a previous conference, and um, you and I, yeah, we were going to be—it's uh, the—it's a crying episode, right? Uh, it, another one. <laughs> Another another crying episode. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about him and, and let's get this conversation started. Well, our guest today started his career as a crime scene technician with the Chandler, Arizona Police Department in 2001. 2004, he was hired as an officer and in 2007 promoted to field training officer. Since 2019, he's been an officer and a field training officer with the Sandy Police Department in Sandy, Utah, where he patrols 41 local and regional parks and over 110 miles of mixed-use trails. He also serves on the executive board for the National Association of Field Training Officers, along with one of our former guests, Paul Hasselberger. We're happy to welcome Graham Tinius to the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Just to let our listeners know uh, where Paul helped us earn the the E rating that we're we're proud of, uh, Graham is much more thoughtful and studious and things. <laughs> so sure Paul will love to hear that. <laughs> I just, I use longer swear words. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, it, Paul, Paul, unfortunately, wasn't able to come to the conference and, and we all miss him uh, because uh, he had a way of keeping things uh, lively. Lively. M- mostly through his loud voice and uh, his frequent Jersey use. accent. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Graham, though, hey, man, we're happy to have you. It's, it's good to finally, we've been trying to get this thing scheduled. So glad we can make it happen. So I, I want to start off with your career beginnings in Chandler, Arizona. What, what drew you to this profession to begin with? A very specific story. Um, I had a teacher in high school, junior year of high school that had a bookshelf in the back of her class, uh, just a whole bunch of random books on it. And I, as usual, was not paying attention to class. And I was 
rocking back in my chair and looked over and there was a book uh, titled Dead Men Do Tell Tales. Having no idea what it was about, only knowing that I'm a huge Steve Martin fan and he has a movie called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and not understanding that that was actually a riff on Dead Men Don't Tell Tales, I was like, (laughs) maybe this book's about Steve Martin. So I grabbed it. It was not about Steve Martin at all. It was about forensic anthropology. And it was about identifying people from their bones and from their remains. And I was like, this is the coolest shit I've ever heard about. I want to do this. How many pages in before you realized it wasn't a Steve Martin book? Yeah, like three. (laughs) three. So you read this book. Yeah. And and that kind of helped set the table for you. Yeah, decide I want to be a forensic anthropologist until I realized that that meant being a doctor. (laughs) So then again, we come back to my high school career. That was not on the table. So I was like, hey, what's forensic anthropology? But like entry level. That's crime scene tech. So I went and I got a degree in forensics and evidence technology and uh, got hired by the Chandler Police Department as a crime scene tech. Did forensics for a couple years, looked around at the cops around me, and I was like, man, those guys are having way more fun than I am. And so I talked to several officers that I was good friends with, trying to understand the workload, the responsibilities, things that they do on a daily basis and decided to pursue that. And in 2004, got hired by the same agency as a police officer. Now I'm trying to get timing right. And Brent, you're better at this than I, I am. When did CSI start the, the TV show? It would have been in the early 2000s, right? Yeah, it was, it was, um, so I was not influenced by CSI. And that was what I was trying to yeah. It was the book that influenced. So, so yeah. you didn't have the Hollywood no, influence. But I answered lots of questions to other people who saw my shirt that said <laughs> or, forensic services. Or forensic like, files. Yeah. I mean, that's a All huge All that show. stuff came out yeah. kind of like right as I was in the, in the lab. And so uh, what, what is the role uh, for our listeners who maybe don't know uh, of someone who does crime scenes? I mean, because it really is a specialized skill, isn't it? It is. So first of all, we don't usually wear high heels and crop tops. Like most of us wear BD. <laughs> what, what you do in the privacy of your own yeah. home is your own business. Um, but yeah, so, it, and I'm sure it's agency specific, but at Chandler at the time, you know, we went out, we did um, fingerprinting, we did photography. We'd go on, on all major crime scenes, but um, Chandler actually has a really nice crime lab and they go out on um, like lower level crime scenes. So and any vehicle burglary, if an officer wants fingerprints, they call for crime scene tech and somebody responds out. Um, like I said, photography, crime scene documentation, they do um, uh, trajectory, they have uh, um, uh, forensic light sources and things like that. And so they they process the physical and biological evidence out in the scene for the officers. And now, uh, one, I think one of the most important skills for somebody who undertakes that type of job is the meticulous detail because it's not just about finding the evidence. It's about properly collecting the evidence and then properly submitting the evidence and then documenting the fact that you got the evidence. I think that's important, but I think the most important skill is to not have an aversion to things that are wet, warm, and sticky. Because the number- Care care to elaborate on that? Yeah, well, (laughs) there was one time where I had a piece of human brain on my arm which shouldn't have been there, right? So like moved moved around a crime scene without paying attention and got a little chunk of brain on my arm and looking down and like recognizing that I have somebody else's brain on my arm and then not immediately throwing up on my shoes. And yeah, because you don't want to add something exactly. to the crime scene exactly. because that's yes. how people get wrongfully yes. convicted. DNA introduction mm-hmm. into the crime scene. Did you have a strong stomach beforehand or did you develop one? Um... I think I had a strong stomach. I can just, weird weird sidebar conversation here, but like I I don't do poop at all. <laughs> Cannot do poop. Like you give me muscles and blood and veins and bones, and I'm okay with that. But like if your toddler 
poops in the chair next to me, I'm gone. I'm out. So. Okay. It's, see, it's interesting because my, mine is vomit, mm-hmm. and, and even to my own, Yep. you know? And, and so it's funny how people have little things, even in a position like that, that they have to be uh, especially self-aware of. Yep. And then at the end of the day, you just, you know, just take a breath and do your job because you have to. Did Chandler, did they run that unit uh, just during the day, during the week? or what? No, so I mean, this is back in 01. And I think way back in the beginning, there might have been like a small gap between like 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. maybe. I'm trying to remember um, where we didn't have coverage. By the time uh, I left the crime lab and was an officer and all that, uh, 24 hours, 365, multiple crime scene techs on per day. Um, now, like I, I haven't been there for several years, but now I'm, I'm, I'm sure that it's continuing in that they uh, are really, really good, good, good crime, crime lab and crime, crime scene tech people there. Well, you make the decision you want to become a sworn officer. Mm-hmm. How, how did your experience as a crime scene tech, how, how did that help you as you made that transition? So I think it gave me an, an eye for things that maybe some officers don't think of right away. So I actually, um, I remember I got a commendation while I was in field training. I got a commendation from our prosecutor because we, um, I think it was, a started off as a hit and run maybe, but uh, whatever the circumstances were, we found a truck and we found two people outside of the truck. And I felt very strongly that one of them was the driver, but he was denying it. He was clearly intoxicated. And I ended up tracking his footprints through the like soft Arizona um, powdery sand or like uh, the clay. I was able to uh, track his footwear impressions to the driver's door. There was only one set of tracks that came out of the driver's door, one out of the passenger side door, and then they went off. And then I looked at their shoes and they were two different ones. And I didn't do like an actual forensic comparison, but I was like, he's wearing Nikes that looks exactly like those. I arrested him for DUI. And our prosecutor was like, I've never had a DUI trial based off of footwear impressions huh. before. And that was pretty cool. And it was just because that's, that's uh, we all bring our, our worldview and our perspective into things, right? So like when, especially like that immediate transition, I'm still very much thinking like physical evidence, biological evidence. What, what, what was the reaction of your FTO when you start, when you start doing yeah. that? Because the, the, like, like the prosecutor said, never had a case like that. Yeah. So when you start doing that type of thing, what, what's your FTO doing? That's I honestly, so honestly, I can't remember, but um, I had a really supportive FTO back then. So I'm sure that he's probably was like, what are you doing? Oh, well, we'll run with that. Let's see how that goes. You know? well, and I think it's important to, to bring up here uh, because you do work in the FTO field now, which we'll talk about in a second. But oftentimes, I won't say oftentimes, there are some times where FTOs often will cut that type of activity off simply because they don't have an understanding yeah. of what the trainee's doing. But every trainee brings something unique into the organization, don't they? Yeah, super. I mean, it's really important to be open-minded. If it's, if it's legal and ethical and within policy and doesn't violate the constitution and we're still achieving the same end goal or even a better end goal, you know, as FTOs, it can be, it can be very hard to watch someone not do something the way that you expect them to. Um, but if they're successful in it and if they're innovative, then it's also okay to like reinforce and praise that behavior. All right. So, so I have to illustrate this here for a second. Um, I try to help my kids with their math homework. But the way that they are, they have been taught to solve problems is different than the way that I was. 
And and it's hard for me to let go of no, that's that's not the way you do it. Yeah. And do do you think that and with your experience because you became an FTO, mm-hmm. is that a hard thing for a trainer to do? Is just to let go? I think that's a great comparison too, by the way, because. Uh, in my, I had the same situation. I'm like, no, I want to do it my yeah, way. Exactly. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. And it does. So when we teach FTO schools, there's a couple things and I'm like, this is going to be very difficult for you as an FTO. And that is one of them is uh, we call it wrong, but different or wrong versus different. Right. So are, are you doing something wrong or are you just doing something different? The example I always use is report writing. If you go back and you pull my last I, I must have taken 1500 burglaries in my career, I'm guessing, right? If you pull the last 700 burglary reports, they're going to read nearly identical, right? Obviously the time, date, location, things are going to be different, but the, the flow, like the vibe of your report, is going to be the same for all of my burglary reports. It's going to be the same for all of your burglary reports. So when I'm on a scene and I'm taking my notes and I'm doing my interviews, I'm already writing my report in my head. I already know what it's going to sound like because I've written it so many times before. And so if I'm on a scene with a trainee and I'm watching them do their investigation, I'm writing my report in my head and then they submit their report to me and I read it and I go, uh, uh, <laughs> what, what is this? This is not what this is supposed to sound like. And early on as an FTO and, and everything that I teach about FTO is based off of the myriad of mistakes that I've made. But early on in my career, I would say, okay, no, I want you to write it like this. I, your report needs to sound like my report. And as I got more experience, I realized that's not fair you think differently than I do. You write the way that you think. So I can't expect you to write the way that I'm thinking. And I'm, I'm hampering you. I'm, I'm damaging you by trying to force you. It'd be like if, um, if I was like, hey, take this report and then write it in Portuguese, right? So you're like taking the report and then you have to try and figure out how to translate it. That's not fair. So it came down to saying like, these are the components that I need in your report, right? Like I need it to be chronological. I need it to cover the elements of the offense. I need it to show or disprove probable cause. Everything else is just style. And it's hard for FTOs to let go because you're, you're used to it. I mean, you've written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reports. They all sound exactly the same. You get a new one in there and it feels uncomfortable, but you, you have to take that objective step back and go, does it, does it cover the five things that I need to see in a report? Everything else is flair and flair is okay. Yeah, yeah, I think the word you were looking for is it feels icky. Yeah. You know, yeah. Does, it just like, eh, just... <laughs> Unnatural. Yep. So, so how did you go about becoming an FTO? An even better story, because you guys know um, NAFTA's executive director, Dan Green. Yeah, uh, unfortunately. Uh, yes. <laughs> so um, I will actually be in right after you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he was the FTO sergeant and FTO was not on my, on my uh, career plan at all. I thought I wanted to be a motor. I definitely wanted to work a dog for a while. There were like certain things that I thought for sure that I knew I wanted to do. And he got the, um, he got promoted and got assigned to the FTO unit. And he came to me and was like, um, Hey, I like your work ethic and I think you should be an FTO. And I was like, uh, you have the wrong Graham Tinius. I don't know <laughs> who you're looking for. Um, and he's like, no, I, I think you should really think about it. Um, and it's not something I ever would have put in for n- not without being prompted. Brent, I find that interesting, especially after our conversation we had with Mandy Biesinger. And Mandy Biesinger has worked in this mentoring program in the Lansing, Michigan Police Department. And part of being a mentor is recognizing a strength or a potential skill in somebody and bring it to their attention. Because I find it funny that 
it was nowhere near on your being on your radar. And yet it plays such a huge role in your life right now. Was it that you didn't think that you were qualified to do it or you just, you don't want the responsibility? Well, what was your thinking? Along there there was definitely, definitely a part of um, thinking that I wasn't qualified I, early on, especially I, I really felt that FTOs needed to know everything. They needed to know everything. They needed to have an answer so that if a trainee looked at you and said, what do I do here? That you always, you always had an answer for it. Right. And again, I've learned so much <laughs> in my career. You, you don't need to know everything. You know right? what you need to say? I don't know, but I will find the answer for you. Yeah. Or I don't know. Let's find that answer yeah. together. Right. Yeah. Like where can we seek out that information? Yeah. Part of it was maybe feeling unprepared. Um, part of it was uh, maybe my own FTO experience and, and just not that not necessarily being as high of a priority as some of the other things. I mean, a dog, everyone loves dogs, right? Like you, like, I feel like everyone wants to be a canine handler at some point, you know, unless, unless you're a cat person, I guess. But um, yeah, it just wasn't on my radar, but, but Dan tapped my shoulder. And, and when you talk about um, where I am now, like, and, and you guys don't even know this, but I, every, every facet of my life is now where it is because of that conversation with Dan. I, li I, I changed agencies and I moved to Utah. I made that connection in Utah because I taught an FTO class at that agency and they, their lieutenant reached out and said, Hey, would you be interested in working here? Hmm. Right. I wouldn't have taught that class if I wasn't part of NAFTO. I wouldn't be part of NAFTO if I hadn't been an FTO, specifically an FTO when millennials started coming into the workforce. Like all these, all these dominoes that fall, like I'm sitting here with you guys, I'm in St. Louis at the Alita conference because I met John Bostain and Keith Wenzel through NAFTO. And they said, you need to be involved with Ilita, right? So I, I know you guys because of Ilita. I know Paul Hasselberger because of Ilita. I'm, I'm work for the agency that I do because of um, FTO stuff. Like everything comes back to FTO. It's, it's crazy how much of my identity is wrapped up in that singular conversation. How important was it for you as a young officer to have someone like Dan say, hey, I think that you would be good at this? How instrumental was that in even building up a confidence as uh, an officer? How was that for you? Uh, it's, it's tremendously huge um, because if, if you see something in me that I don't see, like pointing that out makes me refocus my attention, right? Like never thought about FTO. He goes, hey, I really like, I like your work style, I like your work ethic. I think I'd like you to work for me. And suddenly I go, oh, well, I mean, I, I, I guess I could train people. And then you start thinking like, well, then I could have like some input and some say about like what these future officers look like and I can train up my peers and, and I don't like the way that guy does his job and I'm <laughs> never going to teach anyone to do that. And we're going to make this a priority because that's important to me. And you start, you know, reflecting on the, the, the importance that, that you can play in that role and not just FTO. I mean, any, FTO, any, any role in, in an agency, if someone says, Hey, you're, you're phenomenal at these financial crimes on a patrol level, like you should be a financial crimes detective. Cause if we gave you a desk and a monitor, man, like no one would stop you. It's, it's important to, to encourage other people to, to exploit what they're good at, you know, and, and pursue that because maybe, maybe they don't even recognize it. And, and I think it's important to point out, uh, especially for trainers, you don't know the impact that you have on somebody, both short term and long term. Be intentional uh, about what you do. And when we talked to uh, Chief Tim Barfield. Also, and his advice to, to a younger officer Barfield would have been, hey, focus on the good 
And I just think that it's incredible the impact we can have on each other's lives if we're intentional about what we do. Yeah, a hundred percent. If you look at the number of trainees that came through my car at the Chandler Police Department, like I, I haven't worked there in five years or so, but I know that I had some amount of impact on the way those officers train. Some of them promoted up, some of them promoted up to supervise me, you know, and like that's, I, I think that's super cool. And then uh, through our FTO training, the, the example that I like to give, the part, part of my presentation is like, be a world changer. Like who thinks they're actually changing the world? Most people don't think they're changing the world. Um, Paul and I had the opportunity to go to Guam, as you guys know. Oh yeah. And we taught every uniformed law enforcement agency on the island of Guam. Um, had, uh, first time we were there, we had like 107 students. Last time we had 81. There is no chance that we didn't have an impact on the way that law enforcement is conducted on the island of Guam, right? Every uniform police department, FTOs from every single police department that are there for two generations of FTOs now teaching that downline of officers. I'm from Utah. I have to use words like downline. Um, <laughs> teaching that downline of, of officers. Like I know that I've impacted Guam and there's some other large agencies that we've gone in and taught all their FTOs. I know that I've impacted that culture as a trainer. That like, that's my legacy. That's what, that's what makes me feel good at night. Okay. But, but you recognize that. And what, what I want our, our, our listeners to understand is that even if you don't think you're having an impact, you are. And, and what's your legacy going to be? Isn't it, isn't it better that you form intentionally your legacy rather than it be some haphazard thing? Yeah, that, that's probably even more important, right? Is that socialization happens whether you want it to or not. So you, you start with a ball of clay next to you. It's going to turn into something by the time it gets out of your car. Um, and I like, I love the, the word you keep using, be intentional. That's, that's, uh, something that I really argue for. Like there should be no downtime. There should be no quiet time. There should, nothing should happen accidentally in an FTO car. Like know why you're doing everything. Know why you're having a conversation. Know why you're training something. Know why you're training it the way that you're training. Know why you're communicating that way. It all needs to be intentional, but you're right because you're, you're going to develop something. It's just like having kids, right? Like they, uh, you got to get a license to catch a fish, but anyone can, can have a kid and you watch what happens as kids develop and grow up and they don't have maybe the parental involvement that they needed. They come out, they turn 18 and they turn into something. Right? Thank you for quoting Keanu Reeves from Parenthood. That's one of my favorite Thank lines Thank you for picking up on that. Yeah. You're lucky that that was the quote I chose. <laughs> I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, Aaron and Brent both have I am, I am DB. DB, DB pages. Okay. So you might want to look them up. Maybe we can work them into something Keanu else. Keanu Reeves and I have something in common. We both have IMDB pages. Yeah, just, just pointing that out there. Oh, and you... You, you and Aaron both have something in common too. Uh, Aaron lived in Guam okay. uh, growing up, so right. he, he may not let Dan come in when he gets here because right. he's going to want to be talking <laughs> to you about things. Hey, but do, do you remember? And the reason I ask this because I remember. Uh, do you remember your first trainee? And you don't have to say their name, but do, yeah. do you remember that? No, I do. I do. Uh, were you as nervous as I was as the FTO, as the trainer, the person in charge? Were yeah. you Were you nervous? I, I I don't know if I would describe it as nervous. I definitely felt like I probably wasn't ready or I was worried about making a mistake and that mistake can go like, am I being too critical? Am I not being critical enough? And I'm, I, I tell people, I'm like, you're going to fuck up your first three to five trainees. Like you are, it's, I'm sorry. You are like, you need to a lot of direct supervision. And then eventually you're going to go, okay, 
because you don't you don't recognize what an officer should look like in their sixth week and in their eighth week and in their 12th week until you've got five or six under your belt and then you go hey he's not doing so well like plenty of time to work on it but like early intervention needed as compared to someone else who's kind of meeting all your mental check marks you know like that's a huge responsibility um to train the future of your agency and the future of law enforcement. So have you retroactively gone back and said, developed anything where you say, all right, this is where the officer should be at six weeks. So uh, future FTOs can look at that, that model and say, okay, checking off some, some boxes here. I don't, I don't think it's that, um, black and tangible. white. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, it's, uh, it's not like a skills checklist that we can, can check off. Cause a lot of it has to do again with, not having the answer, right? So we don't have, FTOs don't have the answer to everything. I don't expect my trainee to have the answer to everything. I expect them to have an answer and that's what we get paid for as cops. So I'm 20, I'm 19 years in sworn and I'm 23-ish years into law enforcement and there are still situations that I encounter that I'm like, this is not a situation I've encountered before. Hmm. However, I've encountered these other five that are kind of similar and one of them didn't work out and four of them did. So I'm going to kind of lean that direction in, in my decision-making, right? Like that's what we're, that's what we're really teaching is decision-making, not necessarily having the answer every single time, but just having an answer in order to calm a situation down or control someone or investigate someone. Um, a very, very good friend of mine did an amazing Emerson Hour presentation last night about uh, the importance of failure in training, um, that, that failure and mistakes in training are where they should happen and we should almost celebrate them. That's something I say quite a bit. Like, I want you to fail when you're next to me because I'm your safety net. And when I watch you fail, I will stop you from doing anything that's going to get you hurt or sued or terminated, right? Like I'm there to, to prevent that from happening. If you vapor lock and you don't make a decision, I can't fix that because I don't know what you're thinking. If you make a wrong decision, I can just go, okay, that wasn't the right decision. Let's talk about how you got there and let's figure out how to get you the right place next time. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's not, it's not necessarily like they can accomplish these 12 things in week eight. It's like, are they, are, are they confident? Are they making the right decision? Are they making different mistakes? Like if you make the same mistake every single time, that starts to worry me. Right? That's a problem. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a problem. Um, but one thing I try to stress, if you're making a new mistake every week, I'm not that much worried about it because I can just kind of redirecting and fine tuning that. So, so I, I want to talk to you at, at an agency level. Okay. Uh, ha, have you found that, that one of the difficulties in an FTO program is getting consistency across the FTOs on scoring? And part of it goes back to, you know, what, what's acceptable behavior, where they should be in the program. Have you found that at your agency to be an issue? Yeah. And I, and, and I know you want at an agency level, but yes, at my agency, yes, at my last agency and yes, at every other agency in the United States and uh, probably every agency in the world. It is the number one complaint that we get from administrators, especially when they call NAFTA looking for assistance with stuff is we're, we're all over the board. This guy says he's a three. This guy says he's a four. This guy says he's a six and he's in week this, he's in week that. It's, it is probably the universal problem. And that's because again, it is somewhat subjective as to what a score looks like, right? Um, the reassuring thing is when I go to these agencies is I tell them, I'm like, this is not a you issue. This is an us issue. It's, it's everyone. And I feel a lot of FTO teams 
have um, have problems, we start off our FTO classes with like the airing of grievances from Festivus. Every single list everywhere we go is exactly the same. Yeah, Anchorage PD, Washington DC, Guam, Tallahassee, it doesn't matter. They all list the same 14 problems with their FTO unit and they're like, it's so frustrating and we don't know how to fix it. And I'm like, yeah, that's crazy. Everyone else, everyone else has the same problem and, and we're fixing it across the board. Like we're gonna give you the tools to fix it. Everyone feels very isolated in their problems. And I think it's, um, again, we don't always send our trainers out to get training from outside organizations and bring it back in. We, we stay a lot in house and we put our horse blinders on and then everything, you know, if you work for the Smith police department, then everything looks like a Smith police department problem. And the Smith FTO unit has these issues and you feel isolated and you feel confused and you don't know how to, how to work through that. Consistency is the biggest problem. Um, getting FTOs on the same page on a regular basis to give what you want is your trainee to come through a program and no matter who they happen to get assigned to, they want, you want them to have a similar FTO experience and you want them to have the same possibility, the same opportunity at passing your program, right? So if, if they get assigned to Mike, that trainee shouldn't get terminated just because I took a vacation, Right, Mike and I should be on the same page. Right. And, and that's a great way of putting it there because I, I, I travel a lot. Like you, I tend to stay in the same hotel brand because the consistency is comforting. And it doesn't mean things don't go wrong sometimes, but that consistency, knowing what to expect as you transition in an FTO program from phase to phase, I think it only helps the learning atmosphere for the trainee. Yeah. Yeah. And the other, the other big thing that we get into is, is recognizing that training is training. Like we're not actually teaching police work. We're not teaching law enforcement, right? Like we're, we're, we're trainers and you can train anything. Um, incorporating adult modern learning techniques into your FTO program, you know, so the, the, I will, I will insist, I will, this is the hill I will die on. The day of screaming at your trainee to stress them out is over. There's no, there's no learning purpose behind it, right? The, the days of embarrassing our trainees just to see how they will handle it is over. Like it's, it's so archaic. It doesn't do anything. There's no learning purpose behind it. There are legitimate adult learning techniques that researchers and educators are publishing papers about and doing, uh, you know, studies on and proving that they work. And that's what like my vision and our vision is really moving forward is is legitimizing FTO programs through modern adult learning techniques. Well, I just have to share a story if I can. Uh, my very first trainee when I was an FTO was a guy named Jason Meyer. And Jason is actually a, a faithful listener uh, of this program. Uh, Jason, he got promoted a heck of a lot more than I did. He's a commander now. Uh, but we had a rule in my car because I was on afternoons. At the time we were working eights and I was working the 3P to 11P shift. Uh, from eight to nine o'clock each night, with the exception of dispatch calls for service, that was a non-evaluation time because that was when 80s at eight <laughs> came on. I laugh about it and looking back on it, I did it because I like that, that type of music, but it was a chance for me to regroup so we could finish out the, 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 the training process and it was a chance for him to regroup and it, it always amazed me looking at how he handled calls during that time but because I wasn't, I wasn't a very good trainer. I mean, that was my first one. You, you said, mm -hmm. you're right. But 
just because of the atmosphere, he performed much better than that, there in that hour than he did at other times. And it wasn't because of anything I was doing. It was because of things I wasn't doing. Yeah. And, and I, I wish I, Jay, I wish I could go back and change it. Okay. I apologize for anything that I did to mess up. Uh, but, but it's almost like being a parent Yeah. because you're going to mess things up with your kids. You just don't want to make the lifelong mistake with your kids. Yeah, the first one, they drop their pacifier and you're boiling it in water for five minutes, right? Your second kid, they're dropping their pacifier. You're like rinsing it off. The third, you're like intentionally rubbing in the dirt because the antibodies are probably good for them. (laughs) This will help you not to get sick. I promise you. It may taste bad, but suck it up. Let's go. You know, we talk a lot about uh, this the similarities with, you know, parenting and they're really, it's all about relationships. When you boil it all down, that's what this is, is developing relationship and trying to help one person get to another stage of their, their life or their career. Yeah, it it is. It's, it's that it's coaching, it's mentoring, it's supervising, it's, it's leading, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, I feel like there's a self-sacrifice in being an FTO because it's, you're just taking on extra work. Like you're, you're like, Hey, being a patrol cop is busy, but could you have me do more? <laughs> um, but the, the, the long lasting impact that you have on those officers um, and your agency and yourself. I mean, I've learned so much from my trainees. The other thing that I like about it is it keeps you young. So it is easy as an officer to like get up into your 15, 20 years on and become stagnant or burnt out or frustrated or things like that. But if you work for a moderately busy agency where you're constantly getting trainees through your car, you have young, motivated, energetic, I'm so glad to be here. I can't believe I got this job. I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. This is so much fun, right? Like you have that constant positive energy in your driver's seat next to you that it kind of keeps you in that mindset as well. I find that refreshing. Uh, well, uh, I just want to point out something, Brent, that there's another aspect to this being a lot like parenting. Um, yeah, just like pilots don't necessarily like to fly when other pilots are in control of the aircraft getting somebody new in your patrol car and having to turn over the car keys uh, can be somewhat terrifying. As a parent of a newly licensed driver, I am literally understanding this because (laughs) I I, I learned that my son was not going to learn unless I just didn't be like a hawk over him the whole time. I just got to let go and let him you know, yeah. keep us safe, but you know, yeah. he's well, got to do it on his own. But that's a great way, I think, of illustrating it. So, so you're, you're doing the FTO thing. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved in NAPTO? So, um, I we we were very busy. Like we almost never didn't have a trainee. Lots of triple negatives in that sentence. Um, <laughs> so we. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what you just said. <laughs> I was always training someone. There you go. Right? Always training someone, and I was training them the way that I was always training and I thought I was pretty good at my job. And then I had somebody not pass the program. I was like, oh, that's that's an outlier. Then I had somebody quit. Then I had somebody quit out of my car. Like, I mean, literally we took an accident. I said, hey, pull over the quick trip. That's our our 7-Eleven, our Circle K, right? Hey, pull over the quick trip. We're gonna talk about this real quick. And he says, I don't think I wanna do this. And I was like, no, it's not not a big deal. We're just gonna talk about how the accident went. He goes, no, I don't think I wanna do this. job. And I was like, uh, what? (laughs) And I was like, okay. We drove back to the office. He walked in the sergeant's office and he's like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I quit. And I was like, man, that that was weird. I'd never seen that before. Right. And suddenly I noticed a consistency in the fact that my students were officers were not doing well. 
and, and again, reflecting back how stupid I was at the time, I was like, what's wrong with them? I'm doing everything the same way I've always done. I haven't changed anything. Right. And that, that was exactly the problem. So through that frustration, I ended up trying to like do research online to figure out what was going on. And I found National Association of Field Training Officers and they were having a conference in Phoenix in like a couple weeks or something. And I was like, oh, how convenient. So I went um, and I met some of those folks and I met um, uh, a person who was getting his doctorates in generational leadership or generational studies. And he's like, yeah, let me tell you about millennials. I was like, what? Like, what is, what is this? And he, I, I like to say, he taught me everything that I know about generational communication and generational leadership. And uh, me being like a pretty classic Gen Xer, training people the way I'd been training pretty classic Gen Xers, uh, suddenly having millennials come into my car, realizing that the issue the whole time was that I was still training them the way I would train a Gen Xer and they weren't receiving that information. Like it was, it was a waste of everyone's time. So like I said, you, you fuck up a handful here and there. I know that like, I know, I know <laughs> if you guys are listening, you know who you are and I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, and some of them resigned, some of them, uh, got terminated. Uh, there's uh, one young lady who got terminated from our agency, went to a smaller agency in Arizona, um, did really well there, gained a lot of skills in maybe a slower paced environment and then moved to an agency that's even larger than the one that I was at and is still successful. Uh, and I bring that story up because she still texts me. Hmm. So, um, we had to terminate her. She keeps in touch with me. She lets me know how she's doing. She lets me know new things that are in her career. And, and I just bring that up because it's an important job and sometimes we have to terminate people and that sucks and it's uncomfortable. But if you do it professionally and, and you do it like with respect and you treat people with respect, you don't have to make enemies out of people, you know? So, right. but, but that's probably a hard thing for an FTO to do. I know it was hard for me as a trainer to do checking your ego and saying, you know what? Uh, maybe it wasn't them. Maybe it was me or maybe it was the environment or maybe it was my agency, you know, and you know, too many people, I think a lot of times when, when they have that person go to someone else, they almost want them to fail. Not because they have anything personally against them, but if they succeed, then they weren't the problem. Yeah. I was. Yeah. And, and I think you just, you do, you have to, you have to check that ego. I mean, that's <clears throat> field training is not about Graham, right? Like I'm not training new trainees for Graham. I'm training them currently for the Sandy police department. I can get hit by a bus tomorrow. Sandy police department still going to be there, right? Like there's a, there's a, an institution that will always be there. And that's, that's what we're training people for. It's not for me. I'm just, I'm just a cog in that wheel. Well, and Brent, uh, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but uh, Graham never does anything halfway. Uh, so it wasn't enough to start attending NAFTO conferences. Uh, eventually you made your way to the executive board. How did that come about? Yeah. It's just a side effect of having ADD, you know, like you just, <laughs> everything's a diving pool um, until I get bored. But yeah, um, it, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's what it, I got involved with NAFTO. I really took to heart what I learned. Um, and then I put it into practice and I was like, wow, this, like, this is working. I could see the results. And so then I was like, I have to go spread the gospel about generational communication so I got involved in teaching classes with them. And, and then as, as that developed, I, I eventually uh, became their training coordinator and then I ran for a board position. And now my entire life is NAFTO 24 hours a day. And uh, I don't know what your retirement plans are. All I can say, uh, anybody who's listening, uh, he does a heck of a good job planning conferences. And, and it, 
always top-notch facilities, top-notch locations. And, and I remember that the Dan was talking specifically about that at last year's uh, conference. But you guys, NAPTO has a conference coming up here uh, in just a couple months, and it's going to be where? Uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, back most, where it all began. The most beautiful place to visit in June. <laughs> Listen, all you have to do is not leave the building, okay? That's, that's what Mikey's going to do. It's going to be in Phoenix. And for our listeners, it's, I understand it's almost sold out. So if you're interested in attending, and you should be, uh, how would they go about finding out about the conference? If you go to our website, www.nafto.org, N-A-F-T-O.org, um, you can upper right-hand corner, there's some tabs for training that we offer and for um, our conference. It is, this is one of the first years where we're like, we're limited in space and we have to have a hard cap of 150 people. And I think we're going to hit that here within the next couple of weeks or so. So if you do want to attend, you know, register soon, but it's a good time. If you can't make it this year, next year we'll be in Salt Lake City or Denver. It's almost always the second week of June. We shoot for somewhere right around that that June timeline, um, but it's good. We have a really good time with it because uh, we have to be at the conference. We try to make it as fun as possible because um, I do most of the logistics. The food's always amazing. I'm not quite sure I've ever asked this of a guest before, but you, st- you were in one agency in Arizona and then now you're in Utah. How is that? going from Arizona to Utah, how uh, did you find that it was the communities were different or is crime crime? So first of all, policing across the globe is the same, right? Or at least across the country, it is the same. I know that when we, when we went to Guam, I think Paul talked to you about this. We were super nervous about, you know, how is this going to look? We went on a ride along and we went to domestics and people smoking meth in the park and, and a car accident, right? So it's very much the same. But the culture of the community is different. You know, the, the, the culture of the community in Salt Lake City is different than the culture of the community in Phoenix. Um, the agencies are different. This is, uh, this, my agency now is about three times smaller than Chandler. So um, things are different that way. Individual officers will have, um, I would say, like more assignments, right? So like you can be an FTO and also have a canine. Whereas in Chandler, like a canine, uh, when I left at least, Canine officers were canine officers and FTOs were FTOs, you know, so we wear, we wear more hats in Sandy, I think. Um, it really changed my perspective on how to train lateral officers. It really did coming in as a lateral suddenly um, and uh, always hating the guy who goes, yeah, but at my last agency, yeah, but at my last agency, and then suddenly turning into the guy who was like, yeah, but at my last agency, I think it's easier to go from working at Starbucks to being a cop than it is to go from being a cop to being a cop. Because at least when you come from Starbucks, you're like, well, I don't, I don't know how to do any of this. When you come in from being a cop, you're like, oh, I know how to do that. And they're like, yep, that's the wrong way to do it. I'm like, oh, oh it felt so right in that moment. Though, right? <laughs> and like our, our, our laws, uh, other than Louisiana, all based off a of common law. So like they're all very similar, but they're just a little bit different. And so uh, coming out of 15 years of Arizona revised statutes and then going into four years now of Utah criminal code, again, it's like, I'm pretty sure that this is the right answer. Like this, this feels like the right answer. This is, this is what I've been doing. And, and then I, I, again, like humble enough to pause and read statute. If I need to pull up the code book and read it, I'm like, oh, it is just a little bit different, you know? So that's, that's been frustrating to me because I, um, I like to be confident in what I do and I don't like it when I lack that confidence. So that's a, like a frustration point for me is like trying to relearn some things that I felt like I already knew, Mm -hmm. but, uh, it was, especially as an FTO, it's, it's opening. Um, to come into an FTO program as as a, a trainee, as an experienced trainee. <laughs> were, were, were you on the board when you made the transfer? I was, yeah. Okay, I, I want you to imagine that, Brent, for a second. You're on the executive board of NAFTO. 
and you got to go through an FTO program. So I got to, no, so quite the opposite. I got to share a story. I don't know how much time we have left. You, I got to share this story though, because it's so share great. Share away. Um, so I came in super humble, right? Like I really wanted to work for this agency. I didn't want to come in with, with arrogance or, or um, big energy or anything like that. So um, I come in, I introduce myself to everyone. I'm super humble. And uh, someone's like, oh, oh, you're Graham. You're from Arizona. You're the FTO guru, huh? And I was like, no, 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 no. It's not like that. Like, listen, I'm, I'm here. Like, I'm here to learn. I'm here to learn from you guys. And like, oh, okay, okay. And uh, my FTO at Sandy is Mike Yoakum. We go out and we start riding together. And the first or second week, he hands me a stack of papers that he's printed out. And he says, these are, uh, these are things that I think are super helpful. They're articles that I found that I think are great for new trainees. And I, I give them to all of my trainees. And I'm like, oh, I appreciate that. Like, I love resources. That's great. So I take them and I start flipping through them. And uh, I'm like, this is, this is good information, you think? And he's like, yeah, I think it's really good stuff. And I was like, that's awesome. And you give this to all your trainees? He's like, yep, I, I keep them printed out. And I, keep, I give the same stack to all my trainees. I'm like, that's super cool. Uh, you should look at who the author is. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, you gotta be fucking kidding me. And he takes them back. And I think six out of the seven were sort of authored by me. So the good news was, um, I already knew the content and they were fantastic articles. Uh, yeah, it was, it's like one of my, my, uh, favorite moments with Mike as an FTO. And he was a great, F a great FTO too. I mean, recognizing, um, like, I think I came in with a reputation as much as I tried not to. I think I came in with a reputation. I think if we ask him now, he'll tell you I was a good trainee. Cause the thing about me, I don't want to be out of the FTO car. They, they were trying to kick me out after four or five weeks. And I was like, Nope, I'm, like, I'm hanging on. Like you, you keep me in this car as, as long as I can possibly stay here. Cause again, I have a safety net. I have someone who can help me make good decisions with that agency. So I, I went into it saying like, I understand what your purpose is. I'm not here to, to override your purpose. Like I'm, I will be a good trainee. I, I do happen to have a lot of FTO experience, right? But like, I'm not, I'm not here to override you. But the moment when he printed off my own articles without knowing it was, Jackpot. that's, I, it's it was, like Michael Jordan. This is a ball. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the free throw line. <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> you know? that, dude, I'm telling you what though, I, I would have been a little bit different than, than, than Graham was. Uh, I would have been. I would have been sitting over there when the, the FTO was completing the DOR over in the seat. I would have pulled out an evaluation form <laughs> and started, hey, what, just, just waited and let, let him ask you, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing your evaluation <laughs> right now, you know, just to jack with him. Yeah. Hey, but but I, I want to talk to you as we're getting towards the end here. Um, you were asked to be a speaker at Emerson Hour here at ILEDA, correct? I was, yeah, last year. And what was your, your speech about? Um, so, uh, my, my speech, I titled it chasing dopamine. Uh, that's the, the working title of it. Um, and it's, a it's a conversation that I had with myself about probably PTSD and probably attention deficit disorder and how much I don't like being alone and quiet in my own head. And so I fill that time with, diving headlong into pools of responsibilities, uh, whatever that might be, whether it's NAFTA or whether it's overtime or um, the disaster area response team through um, FOP or just everything, whatever I can to keep my mind occupied. That's a space that requires incredible self-awareness and self-realization, isn't it? Probably. I probably should have um, developed that skill earlier on in my career. 
uh, you know, I, I it, it's it's funny, you know, youth, in my opinion, is wasted on the young uh, because you gain this knowledge and experience. Uh, but I want to talk to you about the, the disaster area relief. What What is that? Um, so through the um, Fraternal Order of Police, they have um, their DART team, Disaster Area Response Team, and their primary mission is um, feeding first responders in disaster areas. So I've, I've deployed three times. I went to Mayfield, Kentucky after the deadliest um, tornado in Kentucky history. That's 25 minutes from my house. Is it? Yep. Okay. And then um, I went to uh, uh, Louisville, Colorado, which is like a suburb of um, Denver <clears throat> after the... Uh, the um, interface wildfires came off of that field and just burned that city to ashes. And then I went to um, Fort Myers, Florida after Hurricane Ian. And the idea basically is that, you know, we're officers within our own community. So when a tornado comes through and it knocks out the power grid and it destroys all your restaurants, cops still have to go to work. You know, one, one of the things that I remember seeing in Mayfield especially is um, police cars that looked like they had been peppered with double lot buckshot from the side, just from front to back, no windows left. And it was just the debris from the tornadoes had, had ripped through their cars and they had literally taped garbage bags over the windows and were going to work. And, and um, it's gotta be just tremendously difficult to be at work helping people who are struggling because they've lost everything while simultaneously you've lost everything. Hmm. And maybe some of them are stupid like me and maybe some of them go to work because it's the happiest place that they can be because they don't have to think about how much everything else sucks. Um, but you know, watching these officers and the firefighters and, and search and rescue personnel come in and uh, put all of their personal stuff aside to go help out, there's something that feeds your soul when you have a hot meal, right? So like we can give these guys ham sandwiches and granola bars, but there's just something about having a warm meal. And that's kind of what the, uh, the, the people who started DART recognized. So <clears throat> they have a couple of food trucks and they send out uh, uh, like a, an email to everyone who's registered on their website to be a volunteer. And they're like, this is where we're headed. This is when we're gonna be there. If you wanna come out, register and we'll get a hold of you as soon as we can. And then we go out and we cook and we cook and we cook and we cook. And I think in Mayfield, we were cooking 600 meals a day, maybe maybe 500 meals a day. In uh, Colorado, we were cooking 750 meals a day. And in Fort Myers, we were cooking 2,500 meals and not per day, per meal, 2,500 meals, three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So we do lots of breakfast burritos because they're easy grab and go. People are getting up, they're getting their cars loaded you know, for lunch, uh, we do hamburgers and things like that. And then for dinner, it's usually something like just full of starch and protein and delicious kind of soul food. And, uh, and these guys come in from working and they grab a hot meal and they sit down and they have a shoulder to lean on. They have, uh, friends to listen to. Um, they get some dessert and some time to just kind of decompress and then they go back out because most of these guys are working 12 on, 12 off, 16 on, eight off, 24 hours on because that's what's happening right now. So I am I am a very, very, very small part of DART. I mean, there's people that have been involved much longer and on a much larger scale, but it's something, um, the way I say it, <clears throat> if we talk like PTSD-ish, if we talk about like negative influence thoughts, I feel like they... Uh, they eat away at your humanity, right? So you like, you have a certain amount of real estate when it comes to humanity and all the shit that we see on a daily basis, like chips away at that. 
I kind of feel that like you can't gain that back. Like all you can do is stop. Like if you retire, then maybe you're just left with like the quarter acre of humanity that you have left. Um, deploying with Dart rebuilds that ground for me. It really does. I get um, a great deal of joy out of it. It makes me feel like I'm doing something uh, of a higher purpose. It helps me know that the people who are out there, I mean, they're, they're doing search and rescue, they're doing body recovery, they're doing just all kinds of nasty stuff. They're being exposed to terrible combinations of chemicals and debris and, and dangers and things like that. Um, that they can come back at night and get chicken and dumplings like that, that feeds my soul. Well, it, where does the funding come from for, for, for that program? So, um, I don't want to speak out of turn cause I'm not affiliated on that side with the FOP. I do believe though that FOP is entirely, I'm sorry, that the DART is entirely self-funded. So it comes from donations, either from outside vendors or from individuals. And I know if you go to the FOP's website and you search disaster area response team, they have a web page within the DART, uh, within the FOP webpage, and you can make a donation. And in the comments, you can say, give this to DART or put this towards DART. And, and we'll make sure we include that in, in our, our episode notes, because I think that that to be, is to be a very worthy cause. And uh, Brent, I appreciate people that, that practice what they preach. But also, when you talk about legacy, it's not just a professional legacy. Uh, you're also working on your personal legacy because you didn't go alone to Fort Myers, did you? I did not. So when I, when I went to Mayfield, the destruction that I saw um, from the tornado, like it, it, it affected me like on a deep, deep, deep level. I've never, I've never before I've seen destruction like that. It was absolutely insane. Um, and uh, I, have, I have three kids. I have a daughter who's an adult and I have two teenage sons who live at home. And I feel like they've generally had a pretty comfortable life. And so every now and then I like to get them outside of that comfortable life to make sure that they recognize, you know, what, what they have and uh, how fortunate we are. So when we went to Fort Myers, I brought them with. So they're 13 and 17. And, uh, and we cooked. We cooked 250 pounds of bacon. Um, we went into town and we helped people um, tarp tarp up their homes and cut down trees. You know, so we have a couple people with chainsaws that are cutting trees off of officers' homes. And uh, my boys are carrying that wood out and throwing it onto a pile. So really what we try to do is, is um, respond to an area within 24 to 72 hours so that the officers who have to go to work can just focus on being at work. You know, um, one deployment that I was not a part of, but I think it really demonstrates it, is an officer who came in for a meal and, and was just crying. And when they asked him what was wrong, he said he had a pregnant wife at home. A tree had come through their house. There's, it's raining. So water's coming into the home and he's got to be at work, but he's so worried about his family. And so, um, Dart responded to their house. They cut the tree out. They tarped up the whole place. They secured it. They boarded up his windows. And, uh, <clears throat> he came back the next day and was just so ecstatic knowing that his wife and uh, their unborn child was safe and warm and comfortable and he could be at work focusing on his mission. That's really what DART does. And so to bring my boys out there um, was, was a cool experience for us. The Incident Command Center was at the spring training stadium for the Boston Red Sox. For the Red Sox. Yeah, and I for think the, the Red yeah. Sox. Yep. And um, we basically had, you know, the, the, I mean, the National Guard's there, FEMA's there, all the federal alphabet boys are there. And uh, we just had kind of had run of the place. There's a lot of generators and so it's really noisy. And so to sleep at night, I took um, a hammock, a sleeping bag and a pillow and I went to the uh, Red Sox dugout 
and I put my, put my hammock up in the dugout and, uh, I, I slept in the Red Sox dugout. So that was kind of cool. Kind of cool memories. It it was kind of cool, except for, uh, there were also some. Yeah. Mosquitoes and noceums. And I didn't realize it until I got back, but I got ate up. And I mean, I should have known it's Florida, right? It's Florida. But, um, but yeah, so I brought my boys out there and, uh, I think that was a really good experience for them. Um, I think they, they worked really hard. I think people appreciated the fact that they were out there. I think it opened up their eyes to, uh, just how fortunate you can be just in the fact that like our house didn't get hit by a hurricane, right? Like it's not even anything crazy. It's just like, Hey, we're, we're lucky to wake up in a safe and warm house and have something to eat on a daily basis. Well, and last thing, Brent, you, you and I, and Aaron and Brandon have seen this over and over, uh, throughout these episodes we've done, uh, a, a family lineage uh, of public service because your son is, uh, joining the army. So we've already signed the contract and he ships in July to go. But for those listening that went to, he's 68 whiskey, a combat medic. So he'll be shipping off to basic and going out to serve again, to help others. Uh, because I have to think in large part to the example set by his dad. And so, uh, Graham, uh, I appreciate you sitting down and talking with us today. Uh, you truly are a man that I look up to and I cannot thank you enough for what you do, man. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, my entire philosophy is, is around the, uh, the quote from mother Teresa of if you can't feed all the starving children in the world, then just feed one. So, you know, for your listeners, just like ask yourself, like, what, what am I doing today to just feed one? So am I focusing on my one trainee? Am I, am I making sure that my one complainant or victim is getting the best service that they can today? Am I making sure that I am giving my wife the attention that she needs? Am I sure that, uh, I'm, you know, hanging out with my kid on the weekend? Like who, who am I feeding today? You can't feed everyone. So just feed one. That's awesome, man. Brent, I I knew it was going to be good. And again, I was not disappointed. No, I enjoyed it. I think that's a great place to end on with, uh, feed the one start there you got to start somewhere and, and start with the one and work your way from there yeah thank you so much Graham we thank appreciate you, you uh, taking some time for us today thanks for having me